Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, November 18th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. And Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. This week saw the National Book Awards Gala return to in-person programming for the first time since 2019. What kind of a night was it, Andrew? Yeah, signs of life, right? The National Book Awards returned in person for the first time, uh, as you say, since 2019, back to the usual location of Cipriani Wall Street in New York City. My colleague Sophia Stewart was there. Alas, I was not. But by all accounts, it was a wonderful evening, though there were some very serious moments, which I'll talk about in a minute here. But first, congratulations to the winners. Author Tess Gunty won the fiction honor for her debut novel, The Rabbit Hutch, published by Kanaf. Amani Perry won the nonfiction award for South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation, published by Echo. Saba Tahir won the award for YA Books for All My Rage, published by Razorbill, the first Muslim and Pakistani-American woman to win this award. So that's notable. Seven Empty Houses by Samantha Schweblin, translated from the Spanish by Megan McDowell, won the Translation Award, published by Riverhead. And John Keane won the Poetry Prize for his book, Punks and New Selected Poems. And in the Lifetime Achievement Awards, Neil Gaiman was on hand to present the 2022 Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters to the great Art Spiegelman, author of Mouse, of course, the seminal graphic memoir of the Holocaust. And Ibram X. Kendi presented the 2022 Literarian Award for Outstanding Service to the Literary Community to uh, American Library Association Executive Director Tracy D. Hall. This is the second year in a row we should note that the award has gone to a librarian. You can read all about the evening on the PW site and why it was at once a celebratory yet serious evening. But first, I think we should just take this opportunity to once again congratulate the winners. Indeed, Andrew, congratulations to all the winners. And as you say, several participants did strike some serious notes along with the celebrations. Yeah, so the first thing that our readers may know is that HarperCollins, uh, the staff of HarperCollins, are on strike at the moment. And there were strikers present at the awards. Uh, they, they were outside the, the award ceremony. And the strikers drew support from inside, from the stage. This year's host was the model, actress, and cookbook author, and children's book author, Padma Lakshmi, uh, who took to the stage with a button supporting HarperCollins Union members. Uh, and the award-winning poet John Keynes, a MacArthur Fellow, won the National Book Award this year for his book of poetry, also voice support for the union from the stage. And of course, the surge in book bans was another issue that came up throughout the, the evening, right? The, the threats to the freedom to read, I'd say, hung pretty heavily over the event. ALA Executive Director Tracy Hall, uh, accepting her Literarian Award, concluded her acceptance speech with words that my colleague Sophia Stewart said sort of captured the theme of the evening. Let history show that librarians were on the front lines of upholding our democracy, Hall said. Now, Padma Lakshmi, our, our listeners may know, was once married to the author Salman Rushdie, who is now, of course, recovering from a brutal assassination attempt. And Lakshmi also spoke of the bans surging across the country, noting that books and authors are under attack in libraries and schools across the country. And of course, she's right. And the headlines this week only underscore the fact that the attacks on the freedom to read are only escalating. Election Day 2022 has passed, Andrew, and the balance of power in Washington has moved toward divided government. 
Democrats remain the majority in the Senate, while the Republicans will take control of the House in January. Voting trends at the state and local levels suggest that book bans and public school teaching restrictions remain hot-button issues. Absolutely right. In fact, the, the trends in 2022, I think, have only been more concerning uh, than what we saw in 2021 when it comes to the threats to the freedom to read and to libraries and schools. And while there was a lot of good news at the polls, you know, at least for libraries and schools, uh, this past election day, there were also some very concerning outcomes as well. So I guess... I'd like to start with good news. So the good news first, and as always, when it comes to local library politics, I turn to John Kraska, who's the executive director of Every Library, which is the nation's only political action committee. And John does fantastic work with libraries across the country on their local ballot initiatives. Once again, John, this year was very busy on Election Day. Uh, this year, he was tracking the fate of some 55 library initiatives across 16 states. And as I said, there was some good news. And the good news is that general support for libraries remains really high overall. Most of the levy renewals and other measures to support libraries that were on the ballot on November 8th passed. But among the concerning developments, at least two libraries were defunded on the heels of significant censorship and book banning campaigns. And both library systems now face significant cuts and possible closure. Uh, one of those libraries in Arkansas was the Craighead County Jonesboro Library, which was defunded by 50%, this on the heels of an 18-month campaign to ban LGBTQ books in the library. And despite a quickly organized Save the Library campaign, uh, the library levy uh, vote actually went, went bad. It was not passed, and now the library is facing a cut from $2 million to $1 million in its annual budget. And in a story that's gaining national headlines, the Patmos Library in Jamestown, Michigan, lost its 10-year levy renewal after a group of citizens organized a no campaign in the week of another long-running campaign by a group of citizens there to have, well, pretty much all the books involving LGBTQ themes pulled from library shelves. The levy loss will almost certainly force the library to close its doors sometime in 2023, which is a devastating outcome that the Michigan Library Association defended in a statement this week, calling that vote a local tragedy with national implications. What else did the Michigan Library Association say? Well, you know, it was a really strong statement. You know, the Michigan Library Association uh, basically, you know, defended uh, library leaders at the Patmos Library. And they noted that, you know, the push to defund the Patmos Library appeared to revolve around actions really were taken on basically five books. You know, four books involved LGBTQ themes that were challenged, reviewed, and returned to the shelves just this past October. And another book is going to really ring a bell here, I think, with our listeners. Maya Kabob's critically acclaimed graphic memoir, Gender Queer, which, of course, has been the subject of sort of a national campaign by book banners and, of course, was at the heart of a failed lawsuit in Virginia to declare the book obscene, which we discussed on this show at the time. At Patmos, the book Gender Queer was actually moved from the adult section to behind the desk where patrons actually had to go and ask for it. But apparently that was not enough. Now, some of our listeners may also recall that this is the second vote to defund the Patmos Library. Voters first voted down the library levy last August with a campaign, you know, that we've kind of seen this playbook run in locales across the country during this wave of book banning. It involved 
local citizens being sort of activated by right-wing talking points and going out in the community and accusing librarians and sometimes educators of, quote, grooming and indoctrinating children for not pulling uh, LGBTQ content from library shelves. Uh, in their statement, MLA officials again offered a spirited defense of the library leaders and of the freedom to read. And I'm going to quote this statement here. Let me grab this. Of utmost importance to any public library is curating collections that allow every citizen to see themselves in the world around them and the diversity of books and resources their library provides, the statement reads. And the statement goes on to also call out these would-be censors for violating the constitutional rights of other library patrons. No one has the right to make rules restricting what other people read, the statement says, or to make decisions for other families, to which I say, hear, hear. So what happens now? Well, nothing really good, it appears. Uh, the Patmos Library Board is going to meet next week. I guess they'll talk about what can be done. Uh, after the initial vote last August, the library raised about $265,000 from a GoFundMe that was set up by a library supporter, including a $50,000 donation from bestselling author uh, Nora Roberts. Um, now, that's about a year's operating budget, I understand, for this small library. But as library officials note on their website, without the levy renewal, the library is almost certainly going to have to close its doors sometime in early 2023. And that, as MLA officials also note in their statement, is just tragic for the community. Uh, they write in their statement, so let me find this quote too, when the decision is made to close and lock the library doors, everyone, those that voted no, those that voted yes, and those that did not vote will lose access to a place to read, gather, socialize, study, vote, and learn. But you know, it's actually bigger than that library. Now you may be thinking, okay, this is one small library. Uh, the voters have spoken, right? Well, not quite. As John Kraska points out, the effort to tie library funding to these censorship efforts is likely just beginning. And this would be a very concerning, pernicious next act and this now years-long surge in book bans. You know, if they can't ban books, are they just going to close the library? That's the question this move raises. And think about that reality for a moment and what it might mean for all of us if defund the library becomes the new endgame for book banners. In Texas, Andrew, a state representative has filed legislation to require publishers to create a rating system for school library books. And that has freedom to read advocates concerned. Yeah, very much so. And this is a, you know, sort of looking ahead to 2023. And it's like, here we go. <laughs> so this is a very disturbing development. And you know, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the process here. But a Texas state representative, uh, Tom Oliverson, has this week introduced a bill, HB 338, that if passed, would force publishers to create an age-appropriate rating system for books that are sold to Texas school libraries. But here's the really concerning part of this proposed legislation. While publishers would be forced to create this new rating system, Texas state officials would actually have the power, the way the law is written, to order publishers to change the ratings that they disagree with. And then if the publishers refuse to acquiesce to those demands, the state could bar schools from doing business with publishers who don't make those changes. The move has understandably alarmed publishers, librarians, and freedom to read advocates. And, you know, while many publishers already, of course, categorize age-relevant categories for young readers, for example, you know, books are designated middle grade or young adult, this Texas bill appears to be an entirely new front, right? It appears to be focused much more on the actual content of a book. 
Uh, in a statement this week, PEN America officials slammed the bill, calling it a clear effort to intimidate publishers and throttle the circulation of ideas and information. PEN officials call the bill a dangerous escalation in the movement to censor public education. And they astutely point out that in just the last two years, we've gone from these right-wing groups sort of activating voters and trying to control uh, what books libraries and schools could put on their shelves to now trying to control what these school libraries and, and, and educators can actually buy and really trying to control what a private company can publish in the first place. Just think about where we are after this latest wave of November elections, right? Campaigns to ban books appear to be transforming into these campaigns to defund libraries. And now you have these would-be censors appearing to go directly at publishers with this new bill in Texas. Now, I wanted to add something about this bill in Texas. The legislature does not meet until 2023. Thousands of bills are filed every year. It's not clear that this bill is going to move at all. But still, as, as a sign of what's to come in 2023, with the still surging number of book bans, it's a very worrisome development. And how have publishers reacted to this uh, legislation? Well, quietly so far. And that's not unusual because, as I noted, this is a pre-file bill. It hasn't brought up, been brought up on the floor. It can still be changed or it might not move at all. And it really is unclear at this point whether or not this bill will move. It's among thousands of other bills that are going to be introduced in Texas's legislative session, which opens in January. But I wouldn't necessarily bet against it moving, right, given what we've seen out of Texas in you know, recent years. So how are publishers reacting? I'm sure that publishers and the library associations, uh, I know for a fact, are still sort of digesting this and working this probably behind the scenes from a lobbying point of view. And I'm sure, and I know that they're outraged at the prospect of this bill. I mean, you have to believe that this kind of state-centered rating system is unconstitutional, right? Uh, as Penn officials know, it would inherently contain subjective and politicized decisions, and it would push publishers to avoid anything remotely controversial. And that's just not going to stand. But here's the thing, too. Well, actually, a couple of things, because a, a few years ago, the publishers sort of refocused their national association to focus on copyright issues. I don't think anyone really foresaw that the freedom to read was going to be such a flashpoint in 2020 and 2021 and 2022. But yet here we are, right? Uh, I'd argue that the most important issue now facing publishers is the freedom to read, which is to say that it's sort of fair to wonder whether the publishing industry still has all the pieces in place that it needs to take this fight to the book banners, to go on offense here. Now, look, if this was an unconstitutional law that touched on copyright issues, I think the AAP is very well positioned to take it on. Just ask Maryland lawmakers, right, who saw their library bill go down to a challenge from the AAP. Uh, but I think the question, it's legitimate to ask whether the publishing industry right now is prepared to mount an effective fight to defend the freedom to read. Uh, which is, of course, every bit as foundational, if not more foundational to the book business as copyright is. So that's something I think we're going to have to keep an eye on in 2023 as this fight escalates. But you know, here's the other thing I wanted to get to, and that's that as an industry, we really do have to get off the mark because these threats to the freedom to read are not going away. And we cannot fight what is clearly an organized political effort by groups on the right with statements and amicus briefs alone. I mean, how do we fight? I wish I had an answer to that. I really don't. And I'll be honest, I haven't spoken to anyone that really does have a good handle on that. We're all kind of, you know, doing the best we can as we go along. But what I think is pretty clear is something I've noted before on the show, and I just sort of mentioned it now, which is that threats to the freedom to read, like this is an organized political effort 
on the right, and it's going to require an organized political response. And what that looks like and how we do it, who's to say? But I think librarians and educators on the front lines who are dealing with, with these bans and are, and are facing these protests would agree that we definitely need more thinking and we definitely need more resources and action devoted to the effort. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for your reporting and commentary and for joining me on the program today. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, physicians and medical researchers must be data-driven, of course, yet research has shown human beings prefer stories over statistics. Dr. Neil Baer is a Harvard-trained pediatrician and a producer and writer for hit TV shows ER, Law & Order, Special Victims Unit, and Designated Survivor. From his work in hospitals and in Hollywood, Dr. Baer says he has learned to tell stories about public health issues in emotionally compelling ways first, then go to the data later. A wonderful researcher who's had a profound impact on me, on Nick Kristoff, the op-ed writer, former op-ed writer, I should say, for the New York Times, and uh, Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner in economics, is the psychologist Paul Slovic at the University of Oregon. And Dr. Slovic found that when you tell people a story that's laden with data versus an emotional story, the impact really is profound when it's a story about one individual. He looked at a story about a a child with food insecurity in an African country and then a story with a child and their brother, and then a story about the village and a story about the country. And people gave the most money when it was a story about one. They weren't moved by large numbers of people. The Science of Storytelling, next on CCC's podcast series. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter, and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the Copyright Clearance Center channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.